Hey everyone, this is Diana. Thank you for listening to the podcast and hope you guys have been having a wonderful holiday. So in today's episode, I'm actually going to be talking about a question I haven't addressed, which is how to deal with those dreadful history passages. Every time I meet a new student, they always tell me these history passages, you know, the ones where they typically show up as a double passage, and it could be anything from you know, a passage written in 1788 to something written in maybe 1932, they say that they find those passages extremely annoying. And you guys know what I'm talking about. You know those questions where they would say, you know, how would, you know, this person respond to this person's, you know, question on lines 32 to 34? And, you know, how would you describe the relationship between the views expressed in the two passages? So I'm going to give you a little helpful tip on how to look at these passages in general. So that's the goal for today. But before I dive in, I want to quickly give out two announcements. One relates to the SAT curve, and the second one has to do with a new project that I'm working on that I wanted to let you guys know about. So back in episode nine, which was released on June 30th, 2019, I was letting you guys know that it should be really interesting to see how the curve would play out for the SAT in the next couple months. And it turns out that it's fluctuating and it's really interesting. So let me give you guys an idea. So in the October 2019 exam, if you miss seven questions, that's a 740, which I think is actually pretty generous. So another way you can look at it is if you miss 11 questions in reading and writing, that would be a 710. Again, really, really generous, right? And seven wrong, you would get a 740. But in November, you that score would be completely different. So for November 2019, you miss seven wrong in reading and writing, you would get a 710. October, you miss seven wrong, that's a 740. That's a 30-point difference, which I think is significant. And as most of you guys may have heard from your friends, um, but math has, the curve has been very steep on that one too. It's been very stable the last couple years, but now we've been noticing, uh, starting in August 2019, if you miss one question in math, that's a 770. If you miss two questions, that's a 750, and so on and so on. So let's say you miss like 10 questions, that would be a 640. So I'm sharing that information because I wanted you guys to just know that this is happening and that if you're deciding between whether to take the SAT or ACT, I think you you guys should consider this um, as a factor. Don't let it be the only factor, but just keep this in mind that this is happening. So I'll continually keep you guys posted. So the next exam is on December 7th. So I will keep you guys posted on the curve. Generally though, I have to say the March tests have been pretty fair, historically speaking. So if you guys are thinking about when you should take the next test, you might wanna consider March. Um, So just keep this in mind um, and I'll keep you guys posted on any updates with the curve. So the next brief announcement I wanted to make was to let you guys know about this new project that I'm working on. 
So I don't know if many of you guys know this, but I do college essays. And I've been the reason one of the reasons why I've been so MIA the last couple months was because starting in June this past year, I was helping seniors with their college essays. And it's starting to wind down now, now that deadlines are approaching and they've submitted their applications. But what I've done was I'm creating a video series on basically commonly asked questions that parents and students ask me about the college admissions process. For example, it could be like basic questions like, I'm not sure what major to choose. How do I step-by-step pick a major? Because sometimes in a lot of these applications, depending on the schools, they want to know your major and what you've done. to. They want support for that major. They want to know what you've done over the last couple of years. So I decided... I was going to condense all, all those questions into a video series. So if you're interested um, in hearing more about it or if you want to get notified because it's not complete yet, but I'm working on it right now, you can click on the URL, you can enter your email address, and then when it's ready, you'll get notified and you'll get early access to it. Um, I wanted to make, I, I did this project because I know that college admissions consultants can be quite pricey. So I thought this would be a nice way for people to gain access to information in a very affordable way. So the URL lists out, you know, case studies that I've done, um, commonly asked questions. And basically I, I treat it like this podcast. I try to get straight to the point. So that college planning is easier for you guys. So if you're a freshman, sophomore, or even a junior, um, check it out, um, subscribe, and then I will let you know when the course is ready. Okay, so thank you so much for listening to those quick announcements. And let's get to the episode. So history passages. I've mentioned already you know, a lot of students tell me they're really, really boring. And when you get to those dual questions, uh, and by dual questions, I mean, what does this author, how would this author respond to the question asked by this author? How would, how are these two passages different, et cetera, et cetera? They can be really confusing. And when you're down to two answer choices that both sound really juicy and the time is it's clicking, it's really hard to pick the right answer. But today I want to try to simplify the process for you guys. So let me just first address the comprehension part. If you feel that when you read these old passages and you have no idea what it's saying, so by the end of it you're like, I don't know what I just read, let me tell you this. First of all, Underline only the sentences you do know. Even if it's only three sentences total for one passage, as little as it may sound, that's actually enough to guide you through the questions. And you're probably like, I don't believe you. But it's really true. These SAT test makers, believe it or not, a lot of it is just fluff content. And um, the most important thing you have to know is that even if just even four, three to four sentences is enough to guide you to the right answer. So if you're approaching the SAT double passages, um, assuming it's old, you know, and you're like, I don't know what I'm reading. And you're getting nervous after reading the first sentence or two or third or third sentence. Cause you're like, I don't know what it's saying. And you're at the test center and you're getting jittery because you're like, I don't know what I'm reading right now. I don't know what it says. So then how can I answer the questions? Don't fret. 
The first thing you need to know is that even if you don't know what that sentence means, it doesn't matter. Okay? So just move on and underline what you do know. Why underlining? Well, I get this a lot. I notice a lot of my students underline, but some of them don't. So underlining is just great because if you're visual, it just really helps you kind of focus when you read, but also kind of tells you, you know, th these are the sentences that are important. And so you'll, you can just go back to those lines, but you don't have to, but just know that if you feel like you're struggling, you might want to try something new and, you know, the simple act of underlining can do wonders. Okay. Let's talk about framework now. This is going to sound momentarily counterintuitive because you've probably heard that, you know, everything you need to know to answer these questions are in the passage. And that is very, very true. But for these historical questions, um, like for example, I'm looking at the April 2017 exam right in front of me and you can always just Google April SAT 2017 and it'll pop right out. Um, so it'll be the first link on the top. Uh, it's a free test. It's, it was previously administered, obviously. So I'm looking at that. So if you want to just kind of download that and follow along, that would be really helpful. So I'm looking at this test and you're right. A lot of these answers are in the passage, but with these double passages that are written long time ago, where it's really hard to understand some actual prior knowledge of history actually is very, very helpful. And by prior knowledge, I'm not saying you have to know like a lot about the historical topic, but even just a basic understanding of it really, really helps. So you're probably like, what is she trying to say? So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to actually simulate and kind of show you my thinking process. And I'm going to answer like two questions from this passage, just so that you guys know what I'm talking about. Again, you don't have to have this amazing understanding of history to get better accuracy, just because these test makers are pretty fair. They're covering topics that you probably heard of in middle school, like the Articles of Confederation. You don't need to know what they were exactly, but you do need to know some basic understanding of it, which helps. And luckily, they give you that blurb on the top, which I think is super duper helpful. So if you're just completely like neglecting that blurb, don't. So let's use the 2017 April SAT exam as a case study. I'm on page 10. And... This is what the blurb says. Passage one by Patrick Henry, and I just write Henry right next to passage one, and passage two by Edmund Pendleton are adapted from speeches delivered to the Virginia Ratifying Convention in 1788. Both are in response to the proposal by the 1787 Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia to replace the Articles of Confederation with a new constitution establishing a national government. So this blurb, really sets up the problem, whether to replace the articles or not. And think about what you know on a really basic level from school of the, about the Articles of Confederation. It was basically weak, right? So that's why they decided to convene to discuss a new type of government. And so that slight background information is going to really help you with those pesky dual questions. And so go ahead and read the passages. Um, Feel free to use the underlying rule. And again, the underlining rule just simply says, 
underline the sentences you do know. And if anything sounds really odd to you or you don't understand it, then it's okay. Just skip it. Okay. So I'm going to give you guys a few minutes um, to read it. And then I'm going to answer some of those dual questions and show you how to do it using the framework, the blurb, and the underlining method. So after quickly reading passage one, by the way, don't skim, make sure you read every single word. What we know on a very basic level is that Henry wants to keep the articles. He doesn't want to establish a new government. Here are his reasons on a very basic level. Line 20, states are awesome. It says states are the characteristics and the soul of a confederation. And then if you go to line 30, um, another reason Henry says is disorders have happened in other parts, but not here. There's no danger. Everything is very peaceful and calm. And then if you go down to line 30, basically the convention should just amend the articles, not completely revamp it. And that's really on a basic level what you really need to know. And go ahead and read passage two. And I'm going to give you a few minutes. And basically... What Pendleton is trying to say is he has the opposite view, right? He wants to discard the articles, and here are his reasons. Line 56 says, who but the people have a right to form government? So passage one was all about states, and here Pendleton is saying, we the people get to decide. Okay, so that's a minor point, but just something you want to keep in mind. And then the the most important reason is actually in line 76. He goes, then the question must be between this government and the confederation. The latter is no government at all. Look how explicit that sentence is. The latter is no government at all. The latter being the confederation, the articles of confederation. So obviously Pendleton is not a fan of the articles of confederation. Then if you jump down to line 80, it says not that confederation, but common danger and the spirit of America were bonds of our union, union and unanimity, and that not that insignificant paper carried us through that dangerous war. So basically, if I was to just simply translate that, he says, hey, it wasn't the Confederation that got us through this. Okay, It was the spirit of America. It wasn't that insignificant paper. So we're clearly seeing that Pendleton is not a fan of the Articles of Confederation. So going back to the blurb, He's probably saying, hey, I'm in support of a new national government. Okay, so then let's answer question 39. So 39 says, and you're, you will oftentimes see this question type, which statement best describes the relationship between the views expressed in the two passages? FYI tip. So I, I feel that 95% of the time, the answer is just the answer that says, the opposite points. So what's another way of saying that these two authors disagree with each other? Um, if you look at a Henry and Pendleton both disagreed with the conclusions of the, but let's say on a surface level, you weren't sure. So let's just keep that open. Let's look at B. Henry and Pendleton held similar beliefs about the new constitution. Obviously that's completely out, right? So we're going to cross that out because they have opposite points of views. C, Henry asked questions that Pendleton admitted he could not answer. I don't remember anywhere reading anything about that. So we're going to cross C out. So we know B and C, 100%, they're wrong. Let's look at D. Pendleton disagreed with most of the points made by Henry. 
That is an answer that strikes me as your typical, hey, they both, you know, disagree with each other. So I'm going to keep that open. So now I'm down to two juicy answers. And I know that a lot of times it's not just about like, hey, I know that's the answer. We're down to two a lot that both sound great. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go back to A and we're going to read that over. Henry and Pendleton both disagreed with the conclusions of the federal convention. If you underline the phrase both disagreed, that's not true because one agreed with the fact that they wanted to change the government and then the other one didn't. So A is not the answer. D is that typical answer that says, hey, both of these uh, authors disagreed with each other and kind of looked at things very differently. So the answer is D. Pendleton disagreed with most of the points made by Henry. Let's go to 41. 41 is an answer that I would say 9 out of 10 students miss. It says Henry would most likely have responded to Pendleton's claim about the members of the convention by asserting that they, A, did not sufficiently address the defects of the confederation, B, should not have proposed an entirely new form of government, C, were seeking only to enact the wishes of the American people, or D, failed to undertake the danger of taking no significant action. So think back to the blurb again and how that set up the problem. So Henry was all about keeping the Articles of Confederation, right? He doesn't want a new government. Pendleton does. So to answer this question, that blurb would have been very, very helpful. So Henry would most likely have responded to Pendleton's claims about members of the convention by asserting that it has to be B, that they should not have proposed an entirely new form of government, which is completely in line with Henry. So what I'm trying to say is that that blurb, it's a goldmine in that it can really help you set up the problem and the framework. And that makes answering some of these dual questions a lot easier. And plus, I think going in with that framework, it's easier to read the content too. So let's do another quick case study. I'm looking at the May 5th, 2018 exam. Again, I think you can Google this exam and you can download it. So I'm on page 12. So go ahead and try to get a copy of that test and I will basically walk you through two more questions, dual questions. So I'm looking at the May 2018 test and this is what the blurb says. Passage one is adapted from a speech delivered in 1854 by Stephen Douglas, defense of the Kansas-Nebraska bill. In 1854, Douglas, a senator from Illinois, proposed a bill allowing voters in the new territories of Kansas and Nebraska to decide whether slavery should be permitted there. When enacted, the bill would effectively repeal the Missouri Compromise of 1820, which prohibited slavery in these territories. Passage 2 is adapted from a speech delivered in 1856 by Charles Sumner, The Crime Against Kansas. Sumner was a senator from Massachusetts. So maybe some of you guys are thinking, Dana, I really don't remember the Kansas-Nebraska bill or even the Missouri Compromise of 1820. But that's okay. If you do remember... What you'll probably recall is this idea of popular sovereignty, how people should decide whether 
these new territories would be slave or not. And if you knew that, that would have been really, really helpful. But if not, again, use the underlying rule, underline what you do know. So let me walk you through this. So take a moment to read passage one. It's on page 12. And I'm going to let you know what I underlined and how that's enough to answer the question. And then go ahead and do that for passage two. And then I will tell you what I underlined. And then I'm going to prove to you that you really don't need to know every single line to answer these questions correctly. So for passage one by Douglas, for me, the key parts were basically starting in line 25, where he says, is not the question involved a simple one, whether the people of the territory shall be allowed to do as they please upon the question of slavery. So what I got from that was, okay, people get to decide. And then he goes, that is all the bill provides and it does so in clear, explicit, explicit and unequivocal terms. So in other words, the Constitution lays it all out, very black and white. So done deal. So it's great if you understood the other parts. But with respect to the dual questions, that's really all you need to know. Now, passage two by Sumner. Here are my key parts. Uh, you probably saw that the word swindle showed up a bunch of times in the first paragraph. So obviously, you know, line 45, it was a swindle of a broad territory that's cheated of protection against slavery. So he doesn't want, he doesn't want slavery, right? And he says people were blindsided and people have these inalienable rights, line 50, and basically they were swindled. That's all you need to know. Then the next paragraph, line 57, says its character was still further apparent in the general structure of the bill. And here's the key part. The next few lines, starting in line 57. Amid overflowing professions of regard for the sovereignty of the people in the territory. So something about how, you know, the people got to decide says, he says, they were despoiled of every essential privilege of sovereignty. In other words, they didn't get it. They were not allowed to choose their governor, secretary, chief justice, etc., etc. And it says, nor were they allowed to regulate the salaries of any of these functionaries, blah, blah, blah. And all this was called popular sovereignty. So what that translates to me is Sumner thinks, hey, they say popular sovereignty, but something else was going on here. It wasn't popular sovereignty. And then the last paragraph talks about, I'm on line 73, suffice it to say that slavery is in itself an arrogant denial of human rights. So obviously he's against slavery because it's a violation of human rights. And then line 80, he writes, but also to the genius of our own constitution under which when properly interpreted, no valid claim for slavery can be set up anywhere in the national territory. So he's saying like, look, even the constitution lays this out. That's really all you need to know. So let's dive in to the dual questions. So 39 says, which choice best identifies a distinction in how Douglas and Sumner characterized the Kansas-Nebraska bill? So A says Douglas characterizes it as straightforward in its intent, while Sumner characterizes it as fundamentally deceptive. Now, typically what I do with these questions where they say Douglas does this and Sumner does this, sometimes dealing with two authors at once can be very overwhelming. So 
I just deal with the author that I remember the most, which is Sumner, because I was passage two. So I just focus on the Sumner part. It says Sumner characterizes it, characterizes it as fundamentally deceptive. He basically said that because he started saying it was a swindle and they're saying it's popular sovereignty, but it's not popular sovereignty because, you know, they said people got to decide who the governor was, et cetera. But that was they were despoiled of that right. So they were, Washington was doing something duplicitous. So I'm going to keep that open. B, Douglas sees it as safeguarding the interests of the slaveholding territories, while Sumner sees it as unfairly burdening those territories. Let's just keep it open. Maybe some of you guys are like, hey, that's clearly not the answer, but let's just keep it open. Because I don't like to dwell when I do these questions. So if I have an ounce of doubt, I just keep it open. I only cross out questions, uh, answer choices, when I know I'm 100% correct that it's wrong. See, Douglas characterizes it as progressive in his treatment of the issue of slavery. Right off the bat, I don't remember hearing anything about progressivism and how Douglas thought it was like that. So I'm going to continue to read the answer choices, but I'm not feeling this. While Sumner characterizes it as upholding the status quo. I feel very confident that's not the answer because Douglas, there was no words that indicated that he thought it was progressive in his treatment of the issue of slavery. D, Douglas regards it as deeply relevant to key national concerns, while Sumner regards it as largely irrelevant. Well, Sumner thought it was very, very relevant, and Douglas didn't think it was, I didn't really hear anything about deeply relevant to key national concerns, so I also feel very confident that C and D are out. So we're down to A and B, and again, they sound really, really juicy. So let's look at B a little bit closer. It says, Douglas sees it as safeguarding the interests of the slaveholding territories, while Sumner sees it as unfairly burdening those territories. If you were considering B, you want to make sure you do a couple of things. One, if you are seriously considering B, look at the line numbers you underlined for Douglas. So I remember I underlined uh, line 26, says whether the... P is not the question involved a simple one, whether the people of the territory shall be allowed to do as they please. That is all the bill provides, and it does so in clear, explicit, unequivocal terms. So he's just saying, look, people get to decide, and it's laid out. So I don't really see it as Douglas safeguarding the interests of the slaveholding territories. And also, if you were considering B, ask yourself, are you assuming certain things to make it seem like B is juicy? Because if you find yourself assuming things, what is an assumption? An assumption is your guess, your personal bias, or your personal thinking that's going to blind you. If you're doing that, don't pick an answer. Recognize when you're assuming. A is probably the answer because do you remember the words swindle that Sumner uses all the time? And if you also look at your line numbers, it is, he does think it's deceptive because he says the people were uh, swindled and it was a swindle of inalienable rights and that people were despoiled of every essential privilege of sovereignty. That is very straight up. And so I'm going to pick A as the answer. Another question, the last question that I'm going to review is line 40, which is a question that a lot of people miss. I would say about 8 out of 10 students have missed this in my class. 
So it says Sumner would most likely fault the simple question, lines 36 to 37, proposed by Douglas in passage one for being. So let's just quickly review line 36 to 37. And that question is, will you allow the people to legislate for themselves upon the subject of slavery? So remember, Douglas is all about popular sovereignty. People get to decide that. Um, but if you think about what you underline for Sumner, so he says in the last paragraph, right, um, this was called popular sovereignty, and then it goes line 73. Suffice it to say that slavery is in itself an arrogant denial of human rights. And line 81, it says, not only to the admonitions of political justice, but also to the genius of our own constitution, under which, when properly interpreted, no valid claim for slavery can be set up anywhere in the national territory. So we're going to try to find an answer that basically captures that. So A says Sumner would most likely fault a simple question proposed by Douglas for being A, biased, since it places the interests of territories over those of established states. I feel like he never really says that. So I feel confident that's not the answer. B, irrelevant, since territorial citizens already have the freedom to legislate on local matters. Well, that's an answer that a lot of people pick because... Do you remember in the body of the middle body of that of the Sumner passage? It says, oh, people were basically not allowed to choose their governor, secretary, chief justice, all of whom are sent from Washington. So that sounds like they didn't have the freedom to legislate because Washington was doing something duplicitous. So that's probably the opposite answer. So I found some evidence for that, so that's not the answer. C, misleading since it fails to acknowledge that certain provisions of the Kansas-Nebraska bill are unrelated to territorial sovereignty. I don't think he ever says that at all, that certain provisions of the bill are unrelated to territorial sovereignty. He says it is all about popular sovereignty, but it's just not being basically abided by. So I'm not liking C. And D, it says immoral, since it focuses on the political rights of territorial citizens at the expense of the human rights of slaves. We just found a bunch of lines that had something to do with the human rights of slaves. And how like, oh, when you when Douglas talks about popular sovereignty, it's on the political sense. But Sumner disagrees with that point. So again, the blurb is really, really helpful in really setting up this framework. And even if you don't have the prior knowledge, the basic prior knowledge about it, don't even worry. Because you know you now know that not every line matters. Actually, the lines that are really under, easy to understand are the key lines that actually are going to help you with this test. So I hope you found this podcast helpful. I know that this was a really long episode, but I think I had to address this because I know that this is a pain point that a lot of students face with the SATs. So I hope you found this episode helpful. Again, if you have any questions that you would like me to address in the podcast, go ahead and email me. I will specify my email address in the box where you can find information about the episode. Okay, see you guys next time.